Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We're continuing our mini-series on megatrends, the long-term forces shaping our future. On our last episode, we talked about climate change. Today, our next megatrend, emerging global wealth. The middle class is growing around the world, and it's changing the global economy. Emerging markets, economies that aren't fully developed yet, are predicted to represent six of the seven largest economies by 2050. Middle-class growth has been especially powerful in China. If China continues to grow at the pace predicted, it could be bigger than the U.S. economy by the late 2020s. So what's behind China's massive growth? Today, we're joined by Molly Rosenman, BlackRock China Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Country Head. We'll talk about how China's economy has continued to grow through the COVID-19 pandemic, the ways its wealth has translated to its people and global businesses, and both the risks and opportunities of investing in China. Molly, thank you so much for joining us today on The Bid. Thank you very much for having me. So Molly, you have just moved back to China over the last couple of months. You lived in Asia about 15 years ago and supported some of BlackRock's earlier growth in the region. So I'm just curious, as you've returned to China in late 2020, what were your first thoughts and observations? Is it recognizable to what you remember 15 years ago, or are there things that looked completely different to you? I think we tend to first think of China as part of the emerging global wealth megatrend, and that's very true. But actually, I think what's so exciting about China is that it represents sort of a confluence of megatrends playing out here, from technology to demographics to urbanization and climate change. And while I've certainly visited over the past 15 years and spent some time in the region, for the places that I haven't really seen in 15 years, they are completely transformed today. It's really remarkable and unbelievable, frankly, to see the pace of change, particularly in places like Shanghai and Beijing, where city centers are now monopolized by skyscrapers and shopping malls and tall residential buildings. With rapid urbanization, traveling in mainland China has been made extremely easy and flexible. There's a high-speed train system and modern airports all across the country. And you also can see an incredibly visible and tangible instance of a higher standard of living everywhere. With increased purchasing power across the population, you can see people driving higher-end cars, spending more on designer clothes, eating out in restaurants much more than they ever did in the past. What's really exciting and fascinating to me is the digital economy in China. So people now buy virtually all goods and services, truly everything in their lives digitally. They travel with e-tickets on their phones. They pay utility bills using mobile apps. And in China, this multifaceted, multi-industry digital ecosystem literally touches every part of consumers' lives. So as somebody in finance who's returning to China, I've seen this, and I've also seen really increased investor sophistication. So many more financial products and investing styles are available to Chinese investors, and most of them are offered through digital platforms such as Ant Financial and WeChat. Having been to China myself a couple of times over the last few years, I can definitely relate to the skyscrapers, the shopping malls, all the rapid urbanization that you've talked about, although I don't have the comparison of 15 years ago, so it sounds like it's been quite a transformation. So what is the story then behind this massive growth that China has experienced? Why has there been this transformation? So in thinking about this, you really need to go back in history a little bit. This economic acceleration in China really started with China's reform and opening initiative under Deng Xiaoping's leadership. Especially in the 1990s, Deng allowed many radical reforms to be carried out, and these were truly radical across agriculture and light industry, which were largely privatized. 
And the country really benefited from adopting more market-based reforms in a growing private sector. So China's GDP has since that time grown 10x to 18% of global share from just 1.8% in 1978. I think another major milestone for China was when they joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, which really opened the door for China's further market exports and expansion. And by 2006, over 400 U.S. Fortune 500 companies had entered the Chinese market, while at the same time, a considerable number of Chinese companies had begun doing business beyond China. So globalization has really transformed China. It's brought tremendous business opportunities to China, and China has become a global manufacturing hub. But in the past decade, this has begun to shift a little bit. Exports have begun to drop to 10% of GDP as China's growing middle class has begun to fuel its local, and as we said before, digital economy, which now accounts for roughly $5.5 trillion or 36 trillion yuan, which is roughly 36% of GDP. It's pretty substantial. China now has many of the world's leading technology firms domestically, which are becoming powerful drivers of the economy. So what you're saying is this isn't a story of just the last, you know, two or three years, this transformation. This really dates back over a couple of decades with economic reforms. You mentioned the joining of the World Trade Organization. So over these last three decades is where we've seen this transformation. But let's talk about 2020, which was a seismic year for the world. And the truth is China actually expanded in 2020. It grew 2.3% last year, and perhaps some people would find that surprising. So what was it that allowed the Chinese economy to continue growing? It's true. If you rewind to a year or so ago, it would have been hard to predict that this is how the Chinese economy would have expanded and how they would recover. China's economy really rebounded quickly following COVID, with manufacturing production activity actually returning to pre-COVID levels by the summer of last year. Many other emerging market countries in the region, such as Taiwan and South Korea, also experienced faster recovery than other parts of the world, given their success in managing low caseloads. And as I mentioned earlier, China's economy is now much more reliant on local consumption, and exports only make up about 10% of the country's GDP. Therefore, we had thought that COVID-related supply chains might have a bigger impact than they did, but this impact was actually pretty limited. And then because of this faster recovery, China's growth has actually been more balanced versus developed economies, and there's more policy space given it hasn't done as much as developed market counterparts. So moderate fiscal spending has been targeted towards sectors such as infrastructure with the aim of shoring up the quality of future growth. And they're really taking this opportunity to invest well in the future of their economic expansion. So you've touched on this a couple times, which is this strength of the local consumer, this increasing wealth for the consumer class in China, and as a result of that, less reliance on exports. So how has that increased consumer wealth in China really translated to its people? Look, over the past several decades, we have witnessed something remarkable as China's economic development has literally lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. At the same time, China's middle class has jumped from just 3% of the population in the year 2000 to over half the population this year. That's a truly remarkable statistic. The average income per person annually has increased from just 940 U.S. dollars to over $10,000 over the past 20 years. The higher income and savings has really led to some pretty major changes in Chinese consumer spending habits as well. So, for example, Chinese tourism, both within China and abroad, has seen significant increases. Domestically, Chinese tourists made 5.5 billion trips in 2018, spending more than 770 billion when they did. For comparison's sake, in 2000, China sent only 740 million tourists abroad. 
And annual spending by Chinese travelers has likewise soared from over $14 billion in 2000 to over $270 billion in 2018. And Chinese consumers are also emerging as a force in the luxury goods industry, accounting for nearly a third of luxury spending in 2020. And Bain estimated that China will become the world's largest luxury goods consumer by 2025. The wealth transfer in China also manifests itself in the country's rapid urbanization, which we talked about a little bit earlier. As of 2020, over 60% of the Chinese population lived in urban areas, which is just a dramatic shift and an increase from roughly 18% in 1978. Molly, earlier you touched on the increased investor sophistication that you've noticed in China and Chinese investors using digital platforms to put money to work. So I'm just curious, how do individuals and families save and invest in China versus, for example, American investors? It's a great question, and China is in a very different situation from a savings perspective. So China has an extremely high savings rate, around 45%. In fact, the main reason for the high trade surplus in China that we were just talking about is that with such a high savings rate, Chinese consumers simply spend less than their peers across the globe. I'd compare actually China's property market with America's equity market, which both saw a pretty continuous valuation boost in the past few decades. In many Chinese cities, housing prices have quadrupled in the past 15 years. So as a result, Chinese families have long believed the property market is the safest investment vehicle, really compared to the country's stock market, which has historically lagged the housing market in performance. And so, not surprisingly, domestically owning a home rather than renting is often a top priority for households. And nearly 80% of China residents said in a recent survey that couples should buy a home before marriage. And it's often the case that middle-class and affluent parents purchase homes for their children. This is starting to change as a significant focus for the government is on educating to help turn these domestic savers and property investors into retirement investors as well. And it's one of the many aspects I find most fulfilling, this educational role that international firms can help to play in this space. And perhaps one other add-on question is, we talk a lot at BlackRock about the savings crisis, essentially that individuals are not saving enough for their retirement for the long term. Does that apply in China as well? Specifically with a large aging population, which is living increasingly longer and healthier lives. China's demographics present a key challenge for the Chinese from a retirement perspective. The one-child policy, which was implemented in 1979, was instituted so that population growth would not outpace economic development and also to address looming environmental and resource challenges. This policy lasted until 2015 when it was formally loosened, and now all couples can have two children. But as a result of decades of this earlier one-child policy, China now faces a pretty pronounced aging population and the policy's recent removal will take years to play out in terms of population growth. Mm -hmm. In 2020, approximately 17% of China's population is estimated to be over the age of 60, and this number is projected to rise roughly 35% in 2050. So as a result, China may face significant labor shortages in the future, and without a concerted focus on retirement investing, China may face challenges in paying for the retirement of that population. So this is a significant risk, but it could also bring opportunities in both the healthcare and financial sectors as people are eager to find ways to ensure that they are securing and better supporting themselves in their later years. So let's talk about technology. It feels like no conversation about China is complete without discussing technology. The Chinese economy is in many ways far more digital than the U.S., Europe, Japan, or other developed markets. So Molly, why do you think this is? 
China's wealth has really emerged in a post-cash, post-credit card world. So the economy is really being built digitally to begin with versus advanced economies that were built on earlier means of transacting and that are still sort of shifting and evolving up that curve more slowly in the West. Also, China benefits from a large domestic market of consumers who are predominantly young and, frankly, eager to embrace digital in all its forms. Most daily usage of digital payments can be done using just one or two super centralized platforms such as WeChat and Alipay. So these apps combine many of the frequently used functions such as an e-wallet or e-bank, social media and booking services that we have many different apps for in the West. You can imagine having PayPal, Facebook, YouTube and OpenTable all in one location on one app. And China is one of the world's largest investors and adopters of digital technologies, and it's also home to one-third of the world's technology unicorns. The government is actively encouraging digital innovation and entrepreneurship by giving companies room to experiment and offering support as an investor, developer, and consumer of new technologies. We've spent a lot of time here talking about how China has reformed its own economy, how it's grown over the last 30-plus years, the evolution of the consumer. But Molly, what's the impact of China's massive growth on how it invests in the rest of the world? Maybe you can talk about some of the examples of how they're doing that. Sure. So as the country's wealth grows, China is investing much more abroad and competing with established powers for influence. The Belt and Road Initiative, for example, is a massive infrastructure project that aims to connect its market from East Asia to Europe. In addition to this new Silk Road, Chinese governments and businesses have invested heavily in emerging market countries in Africa and Latin America, bringing Chinese business models and resources to these developing regions. And China is also bringing their digital technologies to the world. So, for example, China has been a major leader in 5G deployment, and the digitalization of the Chinese yuan is a means for the Chinese government to better channel monetary policy and, frankly, accelerate the internationalization of the country's currency. And if you live in the U.S. or you live in Europe, or let's just say you live outside of China, you're a global investor, how are you starting to think differently about investing in China? Because if I listen to the statistics that you mentioned, the evolution in the tech sector, I have to imagine that this is a region, a country where I am starting to become more interested in perhaps putting some money to work. Well, China has long been a structural underweight in major global equity and bond indexes. But with index inclusions across benchmarks in the last few years, more and more global investors are starting to appreciate that this is an underrepresentation relative to China's economic and technological growth. For example, China represents about 18% of the world's GDP, but it's only 4.8% of MSCI Acqui and just over 7% of the Bloomberg Barclays Global Ag. In contrast, Apple and Microsoft together make up roughly 6.6% of Acqui. As a result, we've seen billions of dollars of inflows in the last few years into exchange-traded products that focus on mainland China stocks, mostly referred to by investors as A-shares, as well as into yuan-dominated bond ETFs. We expect the U.S. and China to become two engines of global economic growth, and the strategic competition between them should lead to supply chain decoupling. So therefore, investors are not only looking to true up their China allocations, but to use China investing as a way to diversify between the globe's two leading competitors. And you mentioned the MSCI Acqui, so that's the all-country world index, so basically a representation of global companies around the world. And so, interesting, you mentioned... China only represents a little less than 5% of that index, even though it represents 18% of the world's GDP. So to your point, for investors who are looking to diversify, China is perhaps a new frontier that they'll be looking at. That's exactly right. 
What risks are investors considering and balancing against these opportunities? So building on this idea of increased competition between the U.S. and China, geopolitical tension remains a key risk factor and is likely to persist. Besides trade disputes, the two countries are racing for global technological leadership, where concerns can range from national security and economic competitiveness to global standards dominance, and potential bans and tariffs could derail investment opportunities in some sensitive sectors. At the same time as competition continues to play out, China and the U.S. will continue to be dependent on one another in a variety of ways, and to seek opportunity to partner, as recent discussions around a climate partnership highlight. And this is not just a bilateral trend. Increasingly, Europe, Japan, Australia, and other developed nations are swept up in this competition and are similarly interconnected with China as major players within the global economy. And as this competition plays out, China and the U.S. will continue to depend on one another. And that links a key area of investing, ESG, or environmental, social, and governance issues. Here, China presents both risk and opportunity. Global investors are bringing new focus and scrutiny to social responsibility and corporate governance in Chinese companies. Transparency into how companies are managed is increasingly coming into focus for global investors, and many Chinese companies have work to do in addressing these concerns. And the geopolitical tensions we've just mentioned link directly to this focus on governance, social responsibility, and human rights. In many ways, China's access to global capital markets creates not only commercial opportunities, but opportunities for China to improve some of the business transparency and corporate reporting standards. And in environmental matters, China is emerging as a key voice. China energized international climate ambitions in 2020 by pledging to peak emissions before 2030 and to reach carbon neutrality before 2060, building upon an earlier EU commitment to do the same by 2050. Addressing long-term sustainability issues really will be critical for all companies and countries to attract global investment capital in the years to come, and this helps to support climate as an emerging partnership area with the U.S. Lastly, China's aging population could present a risk for global investors as well in China. If population growth continues to decline, China's economy could struggle with labor productivity, pension shortfall, and even social strife in the next three decades. And as I mentioned earlier, so it is now the second time you're living in the region. So Molly, as an American-born and educated executive who's spent most of her career in the U.S., what got you so personally excited to take on a new career opportunity in China? A central principle for us at BlackRock and a theme throughout every position I've held within the firm and for all of us at the firm is helping more and more people experience financial well-being. And being a part of doing that in a country of over a billion people with a rapidly advancing and evolving asset management industry is incredibly exciting to me. I've spent my career thus far at an asset manager serving investors and clients around the world, and that has actually taken me across the U.S. as well as globally, and getting to help translate the depth and breadth of capital markets and asset management solutions that have been developed and tested and refined in the U.S. and other developed markets into a rapidly growing economy in a Chinese context means that our expertise can help to play a role as China seeks to reform and involve its financial markets as well as to address its own retirement challenges. So, Molly, if you're still living in China 15 years from now, and I don't mean to fast forward your life, but what more do you think will have changed? And how will China look then as a place to live and invest? Well, the thought of fast forwarding my life is quite alarming. It means I'd go from having a toddler in tow to, I guess, a teenager towing me around, which is pretty hard to wrap my head around. 
But I think from a financial markets perspective, with the upcoming and ongoing financial regulatory changes and the entrance of foreign asset managers, I think the Chinese financial market will be a lot more sophisticated and mature compared to today. There'll be much more use of sophisticated financial instruments and investing styles, which should help to improve market liquidity, providing average investors in China a really diverse set of investment options at home and abroad. And in daily life, we've talked a lot about how China has already seen rapid urbanization for the past few decades, but the growth potential has far further to go. We could see the urban population rise from 60 to 80 percent in the next 15 years. And combined with a focus on greener development, this could lead to tremendous business opportunities and infrastructure transformation in many of the third or fourth tier cities in China. The truth is no one knows what the world or China will look like in the next 15 years, let alone five. And the pace of evolution in China has been truly outstanding. The transformation we've seen over the past 15 years has been remarkable. And we've talked about the opportunities this presents. We've talked about the risks that we may face. But I think we should all be excited to have a front row seat for this and watch it unfold. Well, Molly, it's great to hear your optimism. And thank you so much again for joining us today on The Bid. Thank you so much for having me, Oscar. I look forward to when we can do this together in China. I do as well. On our next episode of our Mega Trends miniseries, we'll talk about technological breakthrough, particularly in the area of electric and self-driving vehicles. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, Seven seven four three three zero zero zero. Registered in England and Wales, number two zero two zero three nine four. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number two zero 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 one zero one four three N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL, 
The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.